Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. What an amazing way to start, John. Worship team, thank you. So we're finishing a seven-week series in the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And it's with great honor that I get to bring us home. And I hope that you guys have your spiritual workout clothes on because we are going to run today. Okay, you better stretch out your hands for you note-takers because it's, it's going to be serious. Before we get into the message, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to go through the whole letter. I know there was verses 2 through 21. We're doing the whole thing. It's too great not to do. If you need a Bible, we're going to be in the Bible a lot today. If you need a Bible, please raise your hands. One of the men's, we have somebody back there, one of the men will go ahead and get you a Bible. Let's review. Before we jump into where we're going to be, let's talk about where we've been so you understand why we're going to go where we're going today. Week one, we talked about life in Christ for everything. Brian Tootin brought us living life for Christ in week two. Don taught us about humility and gratefulness for Christ. Chad Ryan did a message on service and life for Christ. Jeff Abney talked about the proper focus of joy on Christ. Gary Brawley last week talked about pressing on through Christ. And our final key, as you see on the screen, is peace and unity in Christ. So as I said, we're going to be in Philippians 4, 1 through 23. As is our tradition at Cornerstone, we're going to open with the question of the day. This question is going to drive the main theme for what the message is going to be today. Our question of the day, how can you find unity and peace in your life? How can you find unity and peace in your life? With everything going on in the world today, I think that's a fair question. And the Bible is not silent about that answer. True peace and unity in your life can only be found through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So I gave away the ending. So you still have to listen. I'm going to walk us there. It's like a flashback movie, so we'll, we'll get there. Let's talk about the letter a little bit in Philippians. In the first chapter, Paul recounts his present circumstances and his afflictions and how they're used for the Lord. And if you remember, in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, it reads, But the Lord said to him, Go, talking to Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, talking about Paul, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In chapter 2, Paul appeals to the Christians in Philippi, embracing model humility that Christ himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus brought forth. And in chapter 3, he moves into warning the church to place no confidence in the flesh, living instead on focusing on Christ. And lastly, the main point of the letter is in chapter 4, and I found it interesting that every message so far in these weeks has talked a little bit about Philippians 4. Peace in and through Christ resolves all things. So understanding where we're going leads us into where we're going to be. This is written to the Church of Philippi during Paul's third and last missionary journey. It's his first Roman imprisonment, and it's around the time about 62 AD. And on the screen, there is a picture of old Philippi. He had, he had visited the Philippians 10 years before. Paul did. Now he's comforted by Timothy, Epaphroditus, and ultimately Christ as he desired the Philippian church to experience the joy, peace, and unity that he learned through his journeys and through his trials and afflictions. So it's important, if you look at the screen here, I'm going to tell you something pretty interesting. And in the studies, I wish I could put my heart and my time studying into you because you'd see how interesting this is. I'm going to read you a little something here. 
The city of Philippi was known originally as Crenitus, and that word Crenitus means wells or springs. And when at Philippi, Paul and Silas first met up with a woman's prayer group outside of the city gate in Acts. The first people he met into Philippi was this women's prayer group. Way to represent women. Through the testimony of the Lord's work in Acts 16, Lydia was converted as the first Christian in all of Europe. All right, think about that. She's followed by the jailer and the jailer's family. The Lord used Philippi as the well of life from which the gospel was to be a refreshing spring that everyone would hear about Jesus. It's not an accident. I think it's really cool the Lord intentionally uses the things in this world to show his glory. Isn't that cool? So open your Bibles to chapter 4 in Philippians. Philippians, let me quote Doug, it's to the right of Genesis, it's to the left of Revelation. It's in the New Testament-ish, right? So we want to be in Philippians chapter 4. Follow along. I'm going to read some verses and we're going to talk about it. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul begins the last portion of this letter with a great transition word, therefore. Now, therefore drives into something. It means something came before, and we're going to talk about what that means now. And his transition actually begins in chapter 3, verse 1. And that first word, if you're a word person, is finally. Paul leads his letter up. He's making a point in chapter 3, and he's going to drive it home in chapter 4. He goes on to remind the church in verse 1 to stand firm. The first thing we read, stand firm. It's the same word he used in Ephesians 6, remember? And it means to give no quarter, to not yield regardless of circumstance. And this is especially after what he implored them to do the entire letter. From 1, 2, and 3, he's going to bring us home in 4. So let's continue. There's mention of Euodia, Syntech, and Clement in verse 2. But who are these people? You never hear about them anywhere else in Scripture. Now, don't turn there, but remember in Matthew 9. Matthew 9, Jesus tells his disciples, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, for they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. These three are the laborers, like we all are, beseech the Lord to work the harvest that they began in Philippi, beginning with Lydia. They're not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. That doesn't mean they're not important to the Lord. doesn't mean they weren't important to Paul. Paul uses them to demonstrate unity and peace and why it's needed. First among the Christian brethren in the city, as started with the devoted women like Lydia we talked about. But again, through history, we have examples of people who are affecting. I just, I think about John's testimony, think about this part. People affect other people all the time. And you may be in a moment where that's you. You may be in a moment, in church I'll ask you this, do you ever feel like you're cast aside? Do you ever feel like maybe the work you do, no one really cares about? 
I'll tell you to take heart and know that the Lord specifically placed you for a time such as this. And maybe right now, maybe in obscurity, maybe in the spotlight to be where you need to be because you, like John did, can plant the seed of the gospel of Jesus that grows in someone else's life that turns into the richness of a life saved for Christ. Is there any greater work, I ask you? I would say the answer is no. And Paul continues and teaches us that absolutely that is where he needs to be. So that was our first point. Peace and unity within the body of Christ. Our second point, peace and unity with the Lord. Verses 4 through 9. I'm going to start by reading verses 4 through 6. Well-known section of Scripture. It reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. So, in verses 4 through 6, we have three solid commands for believers. We have three solid commands, these three B statements. And you can see on the screen, be rejoiceful. He tells us, be rejoiceful. He emphasizes it twice. I heard Francis Chan once do a sermon about that one verse, and he talked for an hour and a half. I know I talk a lot. We're not going there. Don't worry about it. Francis Chan is highlighting that when the Lord wants to put something on our hearts, he repeats it. Truly, truly, I say to you, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And it's not a suggestion. It's a command. The circumstances of Paul's life remind him daily, he's in prison, that he has every cause to rejoice. He remembers who he was as Saul. And he sees who he is now with the Lord. The second B is be gentle. Verse 5, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The same word gentle, if you're taking notes, this is interesting. 1 Timothy 3.3 3 says, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. And again in Titus 3, verse 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men. He moves us then after rejoicing and being gentle to be anxious for nothing. Prayer cures anxiety. Pretty much just stop there. The point, however, is that prayer does relieve the problem of anxiety because the central point of prayer should never be the focus that you're looking at. The central point of prayer should be Jesus Christ. Amen? And as we pray in communion with Jesus, it's impossible. I've tried. It's impossible to be angry and to be praising God at the same time. I've tried. It doesn't work. So if I'm going to default to something, I'm going to default to praising God. He takes all that from you. And when unity and peace is lacking, you'll see that in your hearts, and it'll mess up your prayer. And when you focus on your prayer, it cures that anxiety. Matthew 6 talks about where anxiety comes from. And in verse 25, remember this is, he's talking about the Lord's Prayer later on, but he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The verses continue at the end of verses 33 and 34. It says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? 
in doing some research on this, you can, you can study the words and you can study the theology. But what's pretty cool sometimes is just to read a story about how this is real in someone else's life. It's why at Cornerstone we believe in doing the gospel moments. I found a great illustration I had to share with you about how to trust God in application. Now listen to this. A ship was wrecked in a furious storm and the only survivor was a little boy who was swept by the waves onto a rock. He sat there all night long until the next morning he was spotted and rescued. Did you tremble while you were on the rock during the night? Someone later asked him. Yes, said the boy. I trembled all night, but the rock didn't. How often do we forget the peace of the rock that's right there? The waves can pull over that rock. That's why I love that picture. And the waves will pass and the rock will still stay there. Jesus Christ will be there in the midst of your anxiety and in your storms. He just will be. Amen. Exactly. Getting us back into the text. So we have four through six now. The last part, seven through nine, it reads as follows. You can follow with me. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. These things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In verse 7, Paul is again telling us we can see peace three ways. Three ways. We have, first, the peace of God, right? The divine peace, it's an attribute of God. Divine peace is God. An attribute of God is a characteristic that is solely given to God. Peace, believe it or not, with the Cardinals win or lose, is actually for God. This peace of God, regardless of external comfort. The second peace is that it surpasses all understanding. Peace excels over knowledge. It just does. No doubt Paul must have been thinking of situations in his life where he can't explain what happened. Do you remember that laundry list of afflictions that he had? Being beaten, being stranded, being jailed, going without food. And sometimes explanations, though, can't help anyway. I call to mind examples of maybe the loss of a loved one, maybe financial hardships, maybe you have problems in your marriage or problems with your children. That wave that's coming over you, the rock of Jesus is still there. And that peace you can find in him. And lastly, we learn through Paul's writing that we can guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And as a police officer, guard's a big thing for me, right? Guard's a military term implying that peace always stands on duty to keep out anything that would seek to do you harm. For these reasons, I'd submit to you that prayerful people are peaceful people. And I was going to cover this. I'll just quickly say it's not a coincidence. This week in our study in Point Man, as I was talking to some men that go to that group here, that we were talking about the importance of prayer in the life of men to be leaders, fathers, husbands, and warriors for Christ. It's not a coincidence. Prayer cures anxiety. So I'll ask you, looking at that picture that we had on the screen before, and don't put it up, is Jesus your rock? Do you know with absolute certainty that like the boy 
in that story when the storms of life sweep over you that he never moves? Some of you, like I said, are in the midst of being tossed around the waves right now. We don't know. And we do a good job putting on a mask, right? But we really need is Jesus. We need to open it up. And if you need reminding of that truth, please talk to me. Talk to Dan. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to one of the deacons. Talk to somebody here. Somebody who can share the stability like John Jeffs did about peace of Jesus Christ in your life because that's real. That's real. On your connecting points, turn it over. You'll see on the top section, being in the community. Being in community. I want you to follow along. I'm going to read. Nowhere in the Bible does it show the efforts of a secret agent for the Lord. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, and Paul all lived out lives where the gospel message of Jesus Christ was to be announced and put on display. All trusted that his word was enough, even through the uncertainty of life. The spray on your face from the storm life has you in may simply be a marker to show you the tidal wave about to sweep over your neighbor. The unity in the body of Christ demands action. The Lord says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So remember, you may be the only lighthouse on a rock anyone sees this week. Shine for Jesus. Share his truth. Go back to Philippians. And we're going to go into verse 8. Verse 8, Paul talks about the command for unity through the peace of Christ in life. Paul is going to transition and bring home this section. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellence, anything worthy of praise. He says these are the vitamins that we chew on and that we bring in to stand firm, to rejoice, to be anxious for nothing. And verse 9 shows us right living comes from right thinking. If we dwell long enough on something, we will do that next thing. Again, you have a thought, as my brothers and I talk about, that leads into an action, right? He's telling us, see how on the end of right living, Paul commands that right thinking. Those who are faithful in that promise follow. And it's promised that the God of peace will be with them. The God of peace is a companion to those who are holy. The word practice it's not an accident. It's in the imperative. It's a verb. Paul is telling us. He's not asking us. He's not saying if you have time. He's saying practice these things for the sake of the name of Christ and our peace. He's commanding it. He's showing us how right living comes from right focus by looking to the right example. And if you remember, he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he says, follow me as I follow the Lord. His right living, his right example is for Jesus Christ. And when you've learned and received and heard and seen what you can see lived out, you can be intentional in the lives of others. And I would submit to you, we should all have a mentor that we look to. We should have someone that we're helping along. And we should be walking shoulder by shoulder with another brother or sister in Christ. That's where we see it. That's where the work of ministry is done. Not on Sundays, in the lives of people. In the parenting, yes, amen, brother. So we continue in our text about peace. Verses 10 through 19. Let's read verses 10 through 13. We're going to break up this last area here. We're going to transition, and we're going to read 10 through 13 together. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity, 
In any, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So a lot of you know this section of scripture. In fact, one of my officers has that verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, tattooed on his arm. And I asked him the other day, so what makes you content? What are the features of contentment of peace? And we had a really interesting conversation. So let's talk about what Paul thinks about that. Ten years have passed. Ten years have passed since the Philippians first gave a gift to Paul. He was in Thessalonica at the time. And Epaphroditus arrived with their gift, the same Epaphroditus we're reading about now. He arrives with their gift. Paul was fully aware at that time that they desired to participate in ministry with him. And verse 10 says, when you've revived your concern, and the word revived means to bloom again. And as you know, flowers bloom in proper seasons. And it tells us that Paul wasn't complaining about the lack of support he may have not had for 10 years, but that in this season now, he knew that they were giving again. He realizes that they're expressing tangibly what they can do. So indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And we don't know, like I said, why they lacked opportunity. It could have been a lack of resources. It could have been a lack of, of, of time. It could have been a lack of commitment. If you read the history, you, you end up seeing in the New Testament that the city of Philippi was actually a city in poverty. And the Christians there were no different. Just because we talk about Lydia being this rich businesswoman doesn't typify the people of the city. And so maybe the opportunity was time, maybe it was money, but certainly there wasn't a season that went by that Paul wondered about their commitment to his ministry. Do you understand? And we can learn as much by what Paul did not say by what he said. Listen to this. He did not rebuke them for stopping financial support. He did not complain about some long delay, 10 years. He did not criticize their commitment. And the reason was because Paul has learned that contentment is not based on people at all. Contentment's not based on people at all. I tell my children, my wife and I would tell our kids a lot, you put your hope and faith in mom and dad, we will fail you. We will disappoint you. But follow us as we follow the Lord who never disappoints you. That's where your contentment's found. That patient gratitude that we have. Take a look. It's not based on money. It's not based on success. It's not based on people. It's a privilege through patience that we get to work in the lives of people. When you uh, want to be a secret agent on your own, your life will not be as rich as when you get to walk shoulder by shoulder with a brother that's going through a hard time. Or you reach out and say, I need help. I need help. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in regards to relationships. And don't turn there, but take notes on this and read it later. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, and I'll highlight this. Not as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend your own business, work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Listen to this. So that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. He's defining for them what it means to love one another. We demonstrate love by using our own abilities to be productive and as much as possible enabling other people to help meet their needs. So when someone can meet our needs, we with gratitude see it for what it is. When we've been practicing as Paul commands us, 
we receive it for what it's supposed to be. Well, what if you can't provide for your own needs? Paul says, remember the starting point of contentment. In 1 Timothy 6.8, he says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. As it reads, do you have something to eat? Do you have something to wear? Do you have someone to talk to? Be content. Be content. If we release our expectations of other people to make us happy, we don't have to manipulate any more relationships. The freedom you get by not putting your contentment in other people frees you to love Jesus the way he wants you to do it. It frees you from having to control circumstances. I'm preaching to myself there. If you look back in the text in verse 11, Paul continues and says, not that I speak from want. He's, he's saying, I've not been anxiously waiting for you to do something about my situation because I was having a hard time. Well, why? Because he's learned to be content in whatever circumstances that he's in. And if you look back, originally that, that term contentment had a radically different meaning. So we'll take a quick moment. I'm going to talk about this for a second because I think it, it merits some time. It used to mean, listen to this, human self-reliance and fortitude, a calm acceptance of life's pressures. That was contentment. And it was a virtue. It was a virtue of the day. Listen to this. You can arrive at a level of respect by establishing total indifference. Total indifference. When you're completely indifferent, it meant you were content. And I can prove it to you. An example of a writer at the time, Epictetus is his name. He writes, begin with a cup or a household utensil. And if it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself. If you're hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. And if you go on long enough, and if you try hard enough, you come to a state where you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. Well, another writer describes the ideology and says, they made the heart a desert, and they called it peace. This is what contentment was viewed like back then. Paul says no. The biblical writers changed it. The biblical writers take that callous and sensitive term and say that contentment is a sufficiency that comes from the belief in the promises of God. I like that definition a lot more. The key for knowing the only trustworthy source of freedom and satisfaction comes from relying not on people, but on the promises of God. And in trusting in the truth of those promises, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that, how, always, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. He continues about contentment. And we, we see in 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That's contentment. Okay, I told you we're going to work out and we're going to run. Get ready. This is the big verse. Go back in the text, verse 12. I'm going to read it. I know how to live. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul repeats, I know and I've learned twice in the span of 11 and 12. You think it's important? It is. Paul first says he learned contentment. He learned contentment, and then he decides to be content, right? It doesn't come primarily as an act of our will. It doesn't. How many times you said, if I just have this, I'll, I'll be better, I'll feel better. And do you ever? You never do. You always look for the next thing to give you contentment and peace. 
We must decide to use what we've learned. There's your contentment. So the first part of verse 12 says, I know how to get along in humble means. Just getting by in bare necessities. And not just physical resources. How about this? How about when you do all the work and someone else gets the credit? Right? How about you're belittled in an effort to do something for someone else while they appear better? How about when you're shoved aside for something? For someone else who's deemed more impressive? Are you shattered? Do you become spiritually defeated? I will confess I do at times. Or are you ready to ignore that? Are you ready to glorify Christ by being belittled, by being ignored just as much as you were by being esteemed and praised? How many times have you heard, don't just tell me, show me, right? From the perspective of society, are you willing to go down so that Christ can go up? John says, I must decrease so he must increase. Well, Paul continues and says, I also know how to live in prosperity. So it's one thing to handle humble circumstances, right? It's another thing to handle the success. Do you grow proud? Do you grow proud? Do you develop a new set of friends? Do you say, think, and do things that you normally would not do? Do you trust in your own abilities other than the abilities of God? The key statement in this entire verse, I've learned the secret. And I would submit to you that if you read the letter of Philippians, one of the key thoughts in the entire letter is right here, I've learned the secret. And that actually refers to a, a term they used to talk about mysticism and what the secret was, they'd initiate you in these kind of rituals and now you had the secret. Paul is taking the context of the time and flipping it. Paul is using it to suggest a kind of initiation of his own, of his experiences. And he's telling you, he's telling the Philippians, here's how you can be content. And once again, he reveals to us that being peacefully content is not something that we simply just decide to do on our own. So Paul spent his entire life getting to by pressing in to the person of Jesus Christ. And for us, we take that example and every day and in every way, we press in to Jesus Christ, right? Who here by a show of hands has already gotten to the exact spot they want to be with Jesus? Yeah, no one raised their hand because we have a journey with Jesus. We have a life of sanctification. And we finally close our eyes, we open them, we look at our Savior who loves us and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen? So what are we striving for? We only are this way. We only become this way, graceful believers, when you face potential discontentment. How's your walk? How's your walk? When you choose to respond by seeing the Lord as sufficient, then you can lead into verse 13, which says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When you look at who wrote this, Paul's life, why it's written, it's put exactly here for this exact reason to highlight everything we've just read. Paul isn't telling the Philippian Christians they're not going to get persecuted. He's telling them, and in the light of that, like he told the church at Colossae, to therefore keep pressing on. If you're taking notes, at some point you can read Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. So let's transition back. We're going to be in verse 14, and we're going to read 14 through 19. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. 
Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul acknowledges right up front that the Philippians have no real way to do what they're doing, and yet they do it anyway. And why does he say they've done well? Not because of what they gave, because they've shared in that affliction and still done ministry with him. Paul learned the gospel and ministry for Christ was not his own possession. He learned, as I said before, life for Christ lived is not to be lived in independence. Different times in the New Testament were reminded of these truths. Again, I would encourage you to look at these verses I'm going to read Acts 2.46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together. Then Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our own assembly together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another. In the past, the Philippians had excelled in this grace of giving. They gave to Paul, we talked about already, but it's remarkable how sometimes it's the little details it's the things that seem unimportant that the Lord uses to remind us, isn't it? God's interested in every cent. He's not interested in how much you give. He's not interested who you give to. He's interested as why. Why? Are you going to partner in ministry with Jesus? Or are you going to do what they did in Acts 5 and hold a little bit back? It didn't work out well for Ananias and Sapphira. In 16, he talks about Thessalonica getting aid when they need it's apparent that Philippians were living so close to God that they could feel, even through this 10-year time in ministry, the Spirit was driving them together. When you think about the fact that Paul was only in Thessalonica for a short time, and he was, it was a very short time, the Philippians sent the need. And by the way, it's not, you can't Apple pay to Paul, right? You can't Western Union, you can't, what do the kids do? Snap face? Snapchat, Snapchat thanks, Maddie. I'm that guy now. I'm old. Okay. <laughs> You can't Snapchat or tweet something. You can't get it over right away. These guys, the church of Philippi, sent the money, they sent the need over to Paul in Thessalonica at the exact right time. How did they know? God knew. That's the point. The other unselfishness of Paul and not highlighting himself, he's excited about their gain. He's excited not about the gift, but he's more excited about the fruit that's being poured out here in Philippi. All we have belongs to the Lord, right? All we have belongs to the Lord, and we give to him. We're only giving to the Lord what's his anyway. <laughs> they know that. That's how they could be content. Instead of saying, how much do I give to the Lord? I challenge you. How much dare I keep for myself? When Paul says in 18, I'm amply supplied, he means I have all I need. He has the strength Some of the things we see nowadays are a complete abomination to God. I think we can agree that. And this isn't a, a politics message, although I'd love to make it one. I'll just tell you flat out that when we look at the world today, it is different than what we read in Scripture. So who do you follow? Hudson Taylor, he's an apologist, he once said, God's work carried on in God's way will never lack God's resources. And the trouble we have today is we don't know how to distinguish the work of God 
and working for God. You know what I mean? The work of God and working for God. Hudson Taylor again, he says, what we greatly need to fear is not insufficient funds, but too much unconsecrated funds. What you do with what you have. The love gift that Epaphroditus brought to Paul originally is described now as a sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. The only other time that this is used is by Christ himself in Ephesians 5.2. Paul is showing them that the sacrificial work that they're giving, this is how intentional the Holy Spirit is in Paul's life, is the same description of Jesus Christ himself. It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Paul says in 19, another promise, because we're looking at the promise of God, that God would supply their every need. So I have a dear friend that talks a lot about rationalizing and justifying. Isn't that right, Mo? Rationalize and justify. We're going to rationalize and justify. But how easy you could take these verses out of context to rationalize and justify Christians who spend my money here, spend my money there. It's okay. Whatever God needs, God will supply his people. God must need me to have a Maserati. I don't think people end up saying that, but the specific promise to those who are faithful and devoted in their giving to Christ never lacks any provision. Never. We support ministries as a church. There are uh, one mission ministries, and you see how God works his work through these ministries. It has nothing to do with the amount of zeros on a check. Nothing. But according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. So think of verse 19 as this. There's a slide that's going to come up. I love this. I'm going to read this to you. My God is the name of the banker, shall supply the promise to pay all your need, the value of the note, according to his riches, which is the capital of the bank, in glory, the address, by Christ Jesus, signature at the foot of the note, without which the note is worthless. Turn your connecting points over. We're wrapping up our time. We're going to read the engaging in the call. A dear friend of mine told me this week that the confusion he felt walking out his faith in Jesus all of a sudden became clear. The gift of salvation he'd been granted, he now embraced as the gift other people need in their life too. He began to add to his daily prayer, Lord, let me run into a complete stranger today that I can share Jesus with. That's all. Nothing more. When you find peace in your life from the unity of being in God's family, then you see every breath as a step closer to home. And every day a page turned in God's story. So live out his story this week and share it with others through the example in your life. Amen, right? Last three verses. It's not just happenstance that he says what he does. We've unpacked the entire chapter and we're going to be as intentional now. Verses 20 through 23. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thinking about God's provision causes Paul, in verses 20 and 22, to break out in praise for his children in Philippi. It's the way every child of God who daily experiences God's care, not only in supply of material things, but in that guidance, can stand firm as Paul pointed out in verse 1. He opens his letter with this characteristic greeting of grace, and now in verse 23, he again is sprinkling that grace of Jesus Christ at the end. Out of the abundance of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the, out of the heart flow the wellsprings of life, Proverbs says, right? 
Paul's heart was filled to overflowing with the greatest theme of all ages. He's learned the secret by living life through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the secret. He knows God's grace trumps everything. It's the shirt that my sweet wife didn't let me buy that has Jesus here and everything underneath. Jesus is over everything. It's not surprising that his precious truth starts Paul's life in the beginning of this letter and ends it as well. So we're going to show another quote here. It's going to be the last thing we see before we move into a time of communion to celebrate this. Paul Rees concludes for us, The greatest of humans has written the warmest of letters. The love task is finished. The day is done. The chain is still there upon the apostolic wrist. The soldier is still on guard. Never mind. Paul's spirit is free. His mind is clear. His heart is glowing. And the next morning, Epaphroditus strides away to Philippi. We find the grace of Christ closest when we have a communion with him. I want to invite the couples that are going to serve community to come up. And if we have worship team, come up now. We're going to move into a quick time of prayer. But I say quick only because we're going to continue praying through the rest of the time. And if you're new to Cornerstone or you haven't seen the way we do communion before, we have different stations around the room. And we invite you to go up with your family or a group of people and ask the couple up there to pray for you and pray with you or you pray for and with them. We see the grace of Christ closest in our communion with him. Let's pray. Father God, you have continued throughout the beginning of time to move in a way that shows us your grace and your mercy. And you've given through your example of Jesus Christ who came to earth and didn't have to. Who died on a cross and didn't have to. For us. Lord, you gave your son Jesus to be broken to take on the sin of every single person that ever was, ever is, and ever will be so that we can transition into heaven with you. You only see perfection. Father God, we thank you that Paul highlights that perfection is in Jesus. Thank you for seeing Jesus and not seeing Jeff. We love you, Lord. And I can't wait to spend another minute with you. Amen.